Great. Thank you, Ken. Um, now, Sheila will be presenting the second lecture on the socialist education movement, the great proletarian cultural revolution, the Ninth Party Congress, the passing of an era in 1976, and uh, Deng Xiaoping. So, Sheila, uh, the floor is yours. Great. Thank you so much. And thank you for um, your part, Ken. That was very, very informative. I'm sure there will be a lot of questions for the second half. Okay, so now, you know, we've heard a little bit about how China begins to tackle the question of development after revolution, right? We learn about the gains and also the challenges of the Great Leap Forward. And while, you know, there were many failures, there were also many, many gains that are often ignored by the mainstream, um, at least in mainstream accounts of the Great Leap Forward, as Ken pointed out earlier. Um, the Great Leap Forward, you know, mobilized masses of people to carry out major infrastructural projects that really lay the basis for future industrial development. And much of the lessons learned from this period sharpen the debates around economic policy that lead up to the Cultural Revolution. Okay, so here we have the socialist education movement, right? And this is sort of the precursor to the Cultural Revolution. So at this time, Mao had already stepped down as the head of state um, and by him stepping down was really an, an acknowledgement of the issues that the party made in the prior years that we discussed, right? So the socialist education movement that was launched um, as a response to the idea that there was so much bureaucratic covering of party officials that was deflecting the damage and failures of the previous years to protect themselves, right? Um, and many party cadre were instead blaming the failures on like intellectuals, reactionaries, instead of actually accepting responsibility for these errors. And in the process of kind of fixing the damage to the economy from the Great Leap Forward era, era um, the Great Leap Forward era, political uh, considerations were somewhat marginalized, right? Decisions about development started to veer towards Western and Soviet models, towards an abandonment of uh, revolutionary idea, like ideals. And this is what Mao and his supporters later call the capitalist road. Um, again, right in the 50s, the process of development was really an era of mass mobilization, right? The difficulties and the Great Leap Forward really resulted in a de-emphasis of this mass mobilization model and, a, and the emergence of a directive approach by these kind of middle level party cadre that we saw in the countryside. The communes still existed there, but now the party committees are just running administratively um, rather than as organizations of mass mobilization. So in 1962, Mao, calls for the socialist education movement where a nationwide investigation of the countryside um, begins and, and he begins to send people from the party, so party cadres, students, peasants, and intellectuals to see what the conditions in the villages are really like. And this was an attempt by Mao to get the local party officials to uh, listen to the people, listen to the masses, right? Instead of just administrating. Um, the cadres in the party um, take this movement um, in a way and turn it into an instrument uh, to control the masses instead of listening to the masses. And, um, you know, this very this very much frustrates Mao, right? Uh, this reassertion of some sort of a, a mass mobilization model that Mao attempts gets, you know, thwarted and then eventually it leads to the Cultural Revolution. But a part of what came out of the socialist education movement was that many of the youth um, that were from the urban centers who went to the countryside um, were actually dealt with kind of a really significant awakening, right? Uh, there was, you know, they realized that there was a huge, huge um, gap in development in the countryside, right? And this begins to um, stir up the consciousness among um, students um, among the urban youth, right? For the first time, um, they really saw that the uh, the continuing of the revolutionary process, right? They kind of um, had this idealized sense of what revolution looked like because they were in the urban centers, right? The urban centers were developing fine, they were progressing, but it wasn't so much 
the same in the countryside, right? There's still a lot of poverty, a lot of gaps. And so, um, yeah, this, this, uh, they realized that this revolution was still a work in progress. Okay, so now we get into the great proletarian cultural revolution, which is um, just like the Great Leap Forward, this is something that you could, you know, just teach a whole class on just the cultural revolution, but we, we don't have time for that. So I'm going to try to explain it as briefly as possible. Um, but many people who know about the Great Proletarian Cultural Revolution have the understanding that it was like this overzealous anti-intellectual movement. Um, but we'll get into explaining what the, the uh, Cultural Revolution uh, you know, actually was and, and what resulted in that. So again, Mao continues waging struggle within the party to rid the bureaucratic elements, the opportunist elements from the party. Um, this really emerges when the clear factions within the party um, had debates over the best method to develop China while also, um, you know, and meeting the needs of the people while also building a socialist society. So Ken earlier talked about the, the one side of the two-line struggle, which was mass mobilization. Um, and this is really, the Cultural Revolution really struggles with the two lines, right? And so the core of the um, Cultural Revolution was this divergence in leadership with the party about the central question, how do we best develop China, right? Members of the party who represented the two lines were both united. I wanted to emphasize that they were still united on, on building a socialist China, but the question was how, how are, how are we actually gonna meet the material needs of the people? So on the one side, and I'll just kind of emphasize it and elaborate a little more, is Mao, right? Uh, his faction believed in the power of mass mobilization, when the masses grasp the idea, it becomes a material force. And by mobilizing the enthusiasm of the masses, we could build development rather than relying on foreign development like uh, the way the USSR did. And Mao felt that ultimately, the way we build the economy will shape the political nature of the system, right? Uh, it, the emphasis was on cooperation, um, you know, building a proletariat, pro proletarianization, um, and this all must precede mechanization. And for Mao, the question of which will win out, socialism or capitalism, is still not really settled, right? It was possible for revolution to change direction, even to resert, uh, reverse itself and turn back along the road to capitalism. This was kind of the fear, right? Uh, the only check against this that Mao believed was to rely on the revolutionary wisdom of the masses um, to keep the party accountable. What measures can be taken to restrict class differences that were still, uh, you know, remnants of the old society uh, to fend off, right, and prevent a new capitalist itself? How do we develop economically and mend the contradictions that come with it? Mao and his faction correctly believed that China still had to undergo a sort of a cultural revolution. The customs of the Chinese society, just like any um, society, those norms existed for thousands of years, right? So what efforts are gonna be taken to shatter those norms? So Mao and his faction came to the conclusion that Chinese society still had these remnants of the same class order, class hierarchy, um, that ultimately was vulnerable to swinging back away from the revolution. So the second part of the two-line struggle, which is led by Li Shaoqi, um, uh, the way to build the economy on this side of the faction is to rely on the expertise, leadership, uh, to guide the process, to direct the masses. Both camps were oriented towards building a socialist China, but Liu argued that mechanization should proceed with cooperation, right? He represented a strong sentiment within the party, the government bureaucracy and the emerging technocrats best summarized in a statement that in China, the question of which wins out socialism or capitalism is already solved. The revolution had already been won. Now the task was simply to proceed with economic development. There's no reason not to adopt the Western or at least the Soviet model with their emphasis on technology and specialization so long as the party guided it. So these are kind of the two lines. So how does the, the cultural revolution really begin, right? So it, it begins with a debate over this play called High Rui Dismissed from Office. 
And this play was about a righteous official who spoke out against uh, the emperor. And, you know, people viewed this as an allegory of contemporary politics, and this really sparked an intense debate. So in November of 1965, Yao Wenyuan, uh, who's one of the leaders of the Cultural Revolution, wrote an article criticizing the play for its political elements, right? Ultimately, that it was an allegory criticizing the left-wing faction of the party led by Mao. And the essay was the first, uh, you know, seen as the first shot against what was labeled as the capitalist rotor within um, the Communist Party. And this led to broader debates about how do we relate to cultural things like um, such as such as this play, right? Do we glorify these imperialist officials? Do we want to use this veiled attack to undermine leadership of the party? It starts again with uh, a debate with this play, right? So the party bureaucracy tries everything it can um, at this time uh, from discussing contemporary politics as we talked about earlier in the socialist education movement. But in a way, the discourse um, that emerged out of this was, was really necessary in the eyes of Mao, right? It was necessary to recalibrate the revolutionary elements within the party, but constantly reconnecting with the people. The party should stay as an organ of the people's will and not have the people just be an instrument of the party. The Cultural Revolution is really a movement that calls upon the masses to criticize and supervise the work of the party. Um, It's a mass movement, right? The party needs to serve the people. It needs to be the instrument of the revolution. And the party needs to submit itself to popular review. Um, This is kind of the essence of Mao's basic intention of the Cultural Revolution. So in 1966, May of 1966, the formation of the Cultural Revolution groups, um, you know, came out of the Central Committee of the Communist Party, which really was the group that would give guidance to the Cultural Revolution. And then the May 16th circular was a document written to the Central Committee um, on the Great Proletarian Cultural Revolution. And this becomes a document uh, that criticizes the party and the leadership and would become the explanation for the Cultural Revolution, right? It, It criticizes the party of bourgeois elements and so forth. Because Mao and his supporters are pushing for the Cultural Revolution, right? He's calling for students and young people to criticize bureaucratization of the party, um, you know, to weed out opportunists and so forth. Um, Of course, party officials didn't like that. They didn't want that, right? Um, So when turmoil begins to emerge on these different campuses led by students, um, the party officials basically see these um, as disruptive And so they create these work teams to be sent out to these schools as kind of an excuse to to quell and and calm things down and reassert party leadership. But once again, just like what happened with the socialist education movement, Mao gets frustrated by the party's response um, to this, uh, trying to control the masses rather than actually listening to to what they had to say. Mao accused them of undermining the student movement. And this is when Mao puts up what is known as the Daji Bao, which I'll explain a little bit later. But the work teams are, are basically the last effort of the cadre of the party to slow down or blunt the thrust of the cultural revolution. Mao tries to get the party to listen to the masses, but essentially through the Daji Bao, um, he unleashes the masses to go buck wild and, and boldly criticize the party leadership. Um, and so what, what is the Dati Bao, right? It's basically, it translates to um, big character pro- posters. They're handwritten posters that are publicly denouncing government officials. They become a tool of propaganda and political communication through the cultural revolution, um, throughout the cultural revolution. And Mao's poster... Um, his Dajibao basically says bombard the headquarters, right? Mao is at this point outright calling on the masses to bombard the headquarters. And this was, you know, him denouncing very boldly uh, what he called the capitalist rotors and the and the opportunist elements within the party, right? And when we talk about the Cultural Revolution, it can sort of be summarized by this, this quote, right? Marxism comprises many principles, but in the final analysis, they can be they can all be brought back to a single sentence. It is a right to rebel. 
And this is the first time in history where a political leader calls on his own people to rebel against their rulers. In fact, call against them to re rebel against his own party, himself as a leader. Um, he's calling on the masses to rebel against their authorities, politicians, teachers, to boldly and directly purge um, reactionary remnants of, of, of Chinese society. As Mao very famously says, right, a revolution is not a dinner party. Um, and so when we talk about the errors and excesses and instances of violence um, that come out of the Cultural Revolution, we should imagine just for a second what would happen if a Cultural Revolution happened in our society, right? Could we imagine what it would be like if Mike Pence or Nancy Pelosi or, or whatever U.S. government official said, bombard the headquarters, right? We've literally just seen a week-long uprising against brutal police killings in the United States and around, and not just in the, in the U.S., but around the world, right? Imagine if our government officials today message to the people that we have a right to rebel, right? We have a right to demand an end to brutal police killings. We have a right to resist without mass repression, right? When you think about this concept, it's actually quite truly revolutionary uh, what Mao is calling for, um, except we know that this would not happen in the United States. But just to contextualize what this what this was, right? Um, and a main part of the Cultural Revolution was also sending folks into the countryside, right? Through these re-education camps and learning, learning from the masses through doing physical labor. Um, and again, to contextualize this, right? How many of us have had experiences with bosses at work who we know wouldn't last a day doing any of the work that we, the workers do, right? What would happen if one day um, they were forced to do manual labor on the fields alongside of their workers? You know, what would happen if your most racist or condescending professors are then publicly ridiculed by you and your classmates and lose their position of power, right? So this is what we mean by contextualizing what really the cultural revolution meant when Mao says bombard the headquarters. So um, by June or July, 1966, people begin to uh, utilize the, um, the big character posters, um, you know, and, and for the first time in, in China's history, all of the people are integrated into the cultural and artistic side of the nation, right? It's not just about criticizing officials, but it's also changing culture, right? Um, in, in, um, historically, culture and artistic life in China was really reserved for a tiny elite. So now during the Cultural Revolution, right, culture was the means by which the emphasis of collective creativity, cooper cooperation and criticism were uh, really emerged. So here we have the Red Guards, and I think people, you know, when they think about the Cultural Revolution, they've heard of the Red Guards, but the Red Guards were the students who were formed uh, by Mao or urged by Mao to make revolution, right? We're dealing with a generation of revolutionary successors, uh, people who will, who will inevitably inherit China. Um, you know, there were many different Red Guard groups uh, that engaged in a lot of revolutionary struggle. But the purpose of the Red Guards was really um, a way to keep the revolution dynamic. And again, a lot of the mainstream likes to characterize um, the Cultural Revolution and the Red Guards as overzealous young uh, people attacking and persecuting intellectuals. But really, the idea behind the Red Guards was addressing a new generation of students who were born after 1949, after the revolution. And, you know, really how do we radicalize a generation of youth to continue the revolutionary process? Mao urges these students to learn from the revolutionary tradition. You know, at this time there was free travel around China. Uh, people were able to take the trains for free and to learn from the masses in the countryside. So the Red Guards were in a way an experiment, an experiment to see how the masses engage with the party and vice versa. Um, the Red Guards really um, engaged in this campaign that's called the Four Olds Campaign, right? Um, the, you know, uh, the old customs, ideas, habit, culture, which really was calling for a radical transformation of society from traditions of the old class society, um, everything from art, culture, education, factories, family structure. These were all elements that needed to be challenged and democratized. 
And so the cultural revolution by way of the Red Guards and, and, and the people who are part of this mass movement meant boldly denouncing elements of class society, such as patriarchy, right? Um, things like um, calling for educating the masses of people where most of China was still illiterate. I mean, there were tons of gains made in the first decade, but there's still a lot of work to be done, right? It also meant reorganizing schools where peasants and workers uh, were able to send their children to college, which still um, at the time, um, colleges were kind of reserved for a, 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 um, you know, a small privileged class of people. And so for the first time now, peasants and villagers um, and workers, their children could go to college. Peasants also had a say in how education was going to be carried out in their own villages, right? Workers had a say in the decision making of their factories. These were truly revolutionary policies that would transform society in a, in a radical way. And this isn't something, you know, just to just to kind of emphasize, right, we we're now in the third class of the series and this has come up time and time again, but this is, these ideas are not things that pop up out of nowhere, right? These ideas of um, overturning the old society, um, criticizing the old society, this was a part of a long trajectory of the modern revolutionary movement in China. Since, you know, the end of the 1800s, the, think about the reform uh, movements that ultimately led to the overthrow of the Qing dynasty, um, the May 4th movement, the new culture movement, these are all anti-colonial movements that also um, brought into question um, dismantling, right, uh, Confucianism, dismantling patriarchy, all these things. So it's just a continuation of, of just this like um, decades long struggle to, to make revolutionary change. So we'll talk about the Shanghai Commune and basically, uh, this is where in, in Shanghai workers joined the Cultural Revolution, right? Which had, at the time, had been mostly um, uh, led by students. So these workers in Shanghai were mainly factory workers, uh, workers that worked in the shipyards, railway, who were members of two large mass organizations, and they really wanted to engage with the leadership in Beijing at the time. Um, so they hold mass rallies, but on February 5th, um, 1967, these two mass organizations, they come together and essentially dissolve the municipal party committee. And they create a commune that's modeled after the Paris commune. And this was their attempt to develop a, a uh, form of direct pro uh, proletarian democracy. It didn't necessarily explicitly eliminate or exclude the party, but it definitely transcends the role of the party. Um, However, Mao decides um, that the commune is going too far because it still needs the party to be the leading body. As you can see, it, it really only lasts for a, uh, a couple of weeks. Um, the way that Mao saw it was that, you know, you can't overthrow the party, even though it wasn't a direct overthrow of the party, the party didn't really have um, any control in, in this commune in, in, a, in a meaningful way. And so, um, you know, when we think about the Cultural Revolution, it wasn't necessarily to overthrow the party, but but to get the party to listen to the masses. Um, so Mao ends up sending Yao Wenyuan and Zhang Chenjiao to disband the commune leadership uh, of the commune. They ended up accepting this negotiation and came up with a negotiation um, that's called the three-in-one combination. So we'll describe what, what that means. So the three-in-one combination, um, you know, the commune dissolves itself in favor of this uh, revolutionary three-in-one combination, which basically three-in-one is party, army, masses um, in one, right? It, it was too, it, you know, they felt that it was too early to establish a workers' commune. In practice, the three-in-one combination really put the party back in the leading role, right? The PLA and the party were closely integrated, um, and this is the reassertion of party leadership, which then changes the course of the Cultural Revolution, such that the conflict of the Cultural Revolution becomes one of who is actually going to be the leadership of the party, right? The question about the party versus the masses is, is resolved at this point, right? It's the party that leads. And so, um, you know, in this section, we're talking really about the factional conflict and party infighting, which I think there's just a lot of nuance here that we won't be able to cover, but I'll try to go through some of these 
points um, with as much clarity as I can. Um, but the Wuhan mutiny incident of July 1967 is a struggle that breaks out uh, for power between opposing forces. Um, and this was seen as a turning point in the Cultural Revolution, right? There was, there were a lot of uh, potential for factional inf uh, factional conflict within the People's Liberation Army, uh, which could have spilled over into a, a real civil war and different factions within the army, you know, emerged. There were um, very tense moments and the party realized that what they really needed to focus on was to rebuild the unity within the party. And so Joan Lai was sent down to uh, Wuhan to arbitrate this situation. And this is where the central party leadership asserts control over the People's Liberation Army. Um, at this time, the summer of 67 and 68, the Red Guards are sent to the countryside um, to learn from the masses, right? Again, you know, urban educated youth sent to the countryside to learn uh, from the villagers. The party cadre were sent out as well. And after the Wuhan incident, uh, um, you know, there was a period of reconsolidation of the party um, control leadership and the movement, uh, leadership of the movement and the People's Liberation Army. And so the Cultural Revolution here then devolves into a struggle for power within the many factions of the party, right? There were two major points, right? They were dealing with who's going to be the dominant force in the party. And the other point was to try to ensure that the party can reestablish leadership in institutions such as the People's Liberation Army, right? The party really needed to unite the People's Liberation Army and reestablish it as a reliable force. So here we have the Ninth Party Congress um, that takes place in April 1969, where Lin Biao is named as Mao's official successor. This is the point where uh, the Cultural Revolution as a political mass movement is over. Um, now the Cultural Revolution, as stated earlier, is a matter of conflicts within the leadership and developmental procedures of China. So we've also heard about the Gang of Forms. Should people have have you know been um, you know have heard of uh, what the Gang of Four is? But let's talk about a little bit what the Gang of Four was. So the Gang of Four emerged in the wake of the Ninth Party Congress um, and is used to describe the remaining faction of the of Mao's left wing of the party. Um, and this, this line of maintaining um, criticism of bureaucracy within the party. However, their major focus of attention uh, was of the cultural arena, right? By developing the cultural superstructure. Um, while they are mainly appealing to the masses, um, they're not necessarily mobilizing the masses. It becomes more ideological. So Jiang Qing, who's the, the wife of Mao, is the driving force of this, right? This Here we see an era of revolutionary opera, literature, an era of ideological struggle. Um, you know, and people will see these operas and engage in, in, in debates, right? Um, but it's different from organizing the masses, organizing the mass movement. They don't really have a mass base here. They want mass participation, but they don't have the organizational mechanism to, to build that. Um, that doesn't mean that there aren't significant contributions, right? Um, a lot of the revolutionary uh, art that comes out of this, the cultural art that comes out of this is, is, is still very much impactful. Um, but again, this is the struggle within uh, the cultural superstructure. So this is the gang of four. This is one side, again, of, of, of the... Um, of the conflicts that come up in, in the party. So Deng Xiaoping is uh, the leader of the other side of the faction, right? The pragmatist side of the faction um, of the party. He's been purged and restored several times. Um, you know, Deng Xiaoping's economic policies of development really caused him um, to be purged from the party during the Cultural Revolution along with Liu Xiaoqi. And to be clear, um, just wanted to clarify for folks that, you know, Deng was always a communist. He was a student of Marxism and Leninism since the 20s, fought alongside Mao. And it really wasn't until the years leading up to the Cultural, cultural Revolution did the differences in opinion um, regarding development really began to emerge. So in 1972, he was in charge of the four 
modernizations um, of agriculture, industry, defense, science, technology. That's the institutional base, right? That's the material base of expanding production, enhancing China's military capabilities, right? Deng was, was in some ways already controlling this side of the material production of the economic base. So the struggle between two lines is a struggle between how best to build a socialist China. Um, but the four modernizations are all about how to rebuild China, uh, rebuild, rebuild China as a socialist China. The Gang of Force perspective was that the policies that Deng and his faction would pursue would spontaneously generate capitalism, which of course is, is why the Gang of Four opposed it, understandably, right? But because Deng and because of his position uh, in the party, because he basically controlled um, the four modernizations, his faction were the ones making the developments in the party to move forward um, economically. So when the political conflict between these two factions is finally resolved, they're the ones in the dominant position because they're the ones who are already developing policy to build the economy. So here we see that Nixon is visiting China um, and we'll talk about what happens here, right? Mao revises his primary contradiction, right? The contradiction which was once, you know, revolutionary socialism and American capitalist imperialism. Um, it changes from that um, to the fact that the U.S. is a spent force, right? This is at the, you know, after the Vietnam War. The primary contradiction is not with the U.S., but now in China's view with social imperialists, the Soviets, right, as a primary threat to China. And this is, of course, a continuation of the Sino-Soviet split, the deterioration of those two relationships. And so the secret negotiations uh, between Kissinger, Nixon, and Mao take place in 1971. And from Mao's perspective, allying with the Americans would ward off what he perceived to be the threat from the Soviet Union at the time, right? But from the American perspective, they were thrilled to exploit the conflict that emerged from the Sino-Soviet split. Um, again, driving a wedge between these two sister socialist countries that should be working together. President Nixon visits China in February as a further step towards US-China rapprochement. Um, during Nixon's stay, the U.S. and China issue what's called the Shanghai Communique. And this document pledges that the countries will work to normalize their relations. Um, the U.S. government here formally recognizes the principle that Taiwan is a part of China. From a socialist perspective, it is absolutely normal for socialist countries to, to try and seek normalization of relations uh, with imperialist countries. So this is what, what happens um, between the U.S. and China during this time. So 1976 is a tumultuous year. Um, lots of deaths take place. You know, we see the death of Zhou Enlai in January 8th. We see the Tiananmen incident in April 5th. And this basically was an incident that happened the evening before the Qingming Festival, which is um, is the, is in Chinese culture, it's the street sweeping festival where Chinese people pay homage to their ancestors, you, know, you clean up everything, you pay homage to your ancestors. And so uh, the masses really came out um, to Tiananmen Square to lay wreaths to commemorate um, Zhou and Lai. However, um, when Zhou and Lai, before his death, he was elected the first vice chairman of the Communist Party after the 10th Party Congress, he um, engaged in a, a, quite a, a bit of struggle with the Gang of Four. Um, and because the Gang of Four was criticized for this struggle by the masses of people who went out to commemorate uh, Zhou Enlai um, during, um, you know, in April 5th, um, this led the Gang of Four to characterize the Tiananmen incident um, as counter-revolutionary, right? So again, just, just echoing that they're, they're quite removed from the masses at this point. We also see the death of Zhu Dei um, in July 6, who was a prominent leader of the Communist Party of China. Um, he was a military leader, founder of the Red Army. In July 28th, there's a massive 7.6 earthquake that takes place in Tangshan, which is a coal mining industry, uh, industrial city. 
This was a horrible natural disaster that led to the collapse of most buildings. There was a death toll of 200,000 to 700,000 people estimated. And then September 9th, we see the death of Mao, um, Chairman Mao. And then on October 6th, we see the arrest of the Gang of Four, right? Um, they were charged with for the excesses of the Cultural Revolution. Um, once the chairman, uh, or Chairman Mao was gone, the mainstream of the party reasserts itself and sweeps away the Gang of Four that immediately leads to, to the reemergence of Deng Xiaoping. Um, and within two years, he comes back into uh, a role of leadership. So when, when Mao dies, when, when Mao and Zhou and Lai die, uh, there was a brief tenure of Hua Guofeng as chairman. Um, and, you know, this period, Deng really gets back involved in practical work, right? He comes back to Beijing. Um, he struggles for leadership in the party and has a broader base of support uh, within the party. You know, the Gang of Four is gone now. There's a work conference that takes place in 1978 uh, where Deng gives the, the final summary report of this work conference. And it's kind of a symbolic moment where he's back as a leader, right? He's now articulating what the line is going to be moving forward. The work conference is where they start to talk about all the different reforms that, um, that are needed to carry forward the revolution Right. This is the very beginning. He talks about the very beginnings of the experiment of the one child policy. The policies that really come out in the 80s is laid out in this final summary report at this work conference. Um, this was the first time, uh, you know, that these policies were publicly articulated. And so he's kind of publicly acknowledged at this point as a dominant figure. He doesn't become the chairman of the party or the president or the prime minister, but he's clearly the de facto uh, leader at this time. And so this brings us to this question, right? Taking the capitalist road. Well, what happens, right? When Deng becomes the de facto leader? Um, landmark reforms from the Cultural Revolution were reversed, but also the rehabilitation of the cadres who had been purged during the Cultural Revolution and were sent to the re-education uh, labor camps, they were all brought back, um, you know, their roles were restored, their reputations were restored, they were considered rehabilitated. Um, this was kind of the wiping slate of cadre uh, who had been on the losing side, they were brought back. So of course they were huge fans of Deng and, and the reform program. Um, on the other side, there was not a wholesale purge of the Cultural Revolution leftists. They were all still around too. So, you know, when we're thinking about the question of capitalist rotor, right, one would think that um, the Cultural Revolution leftists would have been purged, but they weren't. They were not purged during this time. They were still involved. Um, the party begins to set about tasks of evaluating Mao and his policies, evaluating the legacy of Mao and the Cultural Revolution. Um, and then we begin to see the policy initiatives that take shape in the 80s, right? So the population control, um, agricultural reforms, uh, SOEs, the state-owned uh, enterprises. Um, and so it makes it clear here too um, that the state-owned enter enterprises will be the core of the economy. Once again, demonstrating that it's not taking a capitalist road because they're socialist enterprises. That's, that's what gives a party the state and the state the ability to guide and manage the overall process of development. Um, and then of course, foreign direct investment. So is this taking the capitalist road or is this pursuing socialism, right? The emphasis here is what's the, again, just at the very beginning, beginning of, of this section of the class is the two line struggles about what's the best way to build towards a socialist China. The rhetoric at the moment, um, you know, the, you know, at this point, the Deng side of the faction um, basically takes control. And the problem was, you know, there were deep differences of opinion in, in this, right? What's the actual content? What's the system in practice? How do we actually build socialism? Um, and the problem was that the Gang of Four allowed themselves to be alienated and marginalized from the masses. Um, that allowed them to be arrested. Deng led the economic reforms to open China's markets. This plan allows the US to have direct foreign investment in China 
Deng Xiaoping was a, a pragmatist. He felt that the economic development in China had to be done by capitalist methods rather than socialist methods, even though socialist methods were working, even if it was at a slower pace. Um, but we have the final two classes of this series to really hash out what this really means. And so just to kind of conclude and, and summarize, so this class, you know, we just talked about a lot of dense content and I wanna just acknowledge um, again, that the period between 1949 and 1979, you know, the Great Leap Forward, the Sino-Soviet split, there's so much more about the Sino-Soviet split that we did not cover, the Cultural Revolution, these all kind of deserve its own course of its own. Uh, we've really only just scratched the surface, but today we learned really about how China under, underwent many different policies to achieve development, to meet the needs of the people, all under the pressure of a deteriorating relationship with the USSR. And understanding the continuity from the Great Leap Forward, the Cultural Revolution, and the compounding effects of the Sino-Soviet split are really critical, uh, especially because the historical time periods are often mischaracterized and, you know, are a source of anti-China propaganda. So without these major historical moments in China's development, we really could not begin to understand what we'll cover for the next class, really addressing this question. The central question is China capitalist. We'll learn about the uh, China socialist market economy and quest towards socialism. Um, and yeah, that's the end of my section. I realize I went way over, I'm so sorry, but if there are any kind of final questions, I'll be happy to take those. And of course, Ken, jump in whenever you can. Yeah, thank you so much, Sheila. Um, I really appreciate how you connected and contextualized that period of history that you just covered with what's going on now around the US and our um, daily lives as workers. So thank you for another amazing presentation this week. Um, so we'll just ask a few questions because it is a little late. Um, so why don't we just start with, uh, what are the present day effects of the socialist education movement? You know, some of these folks are still around um, and have really contributed to China today. So if you could um, elaborate on some of the effects of this program that we see today in China. And then um, I'll give you one more. So what exactly, um, were the Red Guards learning from going to the countryside? Were they just kind of um, observing how the countryside or were they taking directions from them directly or party members or sort of some type of combination of those three? So we'll start with that. Great. Um, I mean, what are the present effects of the socialist education movement? I think just the, the radicalization of the youth right I, I don't I kind of feel the same same thing with the Red Guards going to the countryside I think both of these right we're seeing really like sending the youth to to see what the revolutionary process could look like in the in the in the countryside I think it was is deeply radicalizing so I think the effects really are just creating a whole generation of people who who kind of are understanding how to carry out the revolution, that it's not just, you know, being in the urban centers and seeing the way it's developing there, but that there are a lot of contradictions still in the countryside. Um, and I think that's what the Red Guards were learning from the countryside at that time. In terms of how they were being educated in the countryside, that I don't have too much detail about, um, but maybe that's, this is something that um, Ken can shed some light on. Yeah. yeah, well, the, the, the experience, I mean, when the Red Guards, there's, there's sort of two phases. There's the first phase, uh, 66, 67 into 68, where young people were given the right to travel for free on the, on the nation's railways. And, and Chairman Mao exhorted them to go out and visit the sites of revolutionary struggle, go down to Jiangxi to where the first Soviet was. Uh, go along parts of uh, the route of the Long March, things like this, uh, to re-engage with the revolutionary struggle. I mean, young people in the late 60s, they had all been born, uh, you know, either right around or just after liberation. And so this was a way to encourage them to, to get back, to, to connect to the history and, the, and the, the legacy of the revolution. And a lot of that went on. But then there's a second phase uh, beginning in 68 that carries on down through through the end of the 70s when young people were were as they call as they say sent down sent out 
to live in the countryside. And that's, that's the phase where they lived in villages, they worked alongside uh, uh, local farmers. Often they, they came to be uh, teachers or what were called barefoot doctors or uh, uh, people who provided other kinds of, of uh, services. They didn't really know a lot about, about farming to begin with, but they learned about that. The idea was to, to gain direct experience of the hardship, but also the, the struggle that went on in the countryside. And so I think um, that's, if you, if you talk to former Red Guards now, or you read a lot of the Red Guard memoirs and all this, that's really, that's, that was the heart of the experience. There's a couple of, uh, of books on our reading list that deal with the, the Cultural Revolution in the countryside that talk about, about this, this period pretty, pretty nicely. Great. Thank you both for those responses. Um, and then we'll just ask one last one. Um, how successful was the Cultural Revolution and the goal of getting the party to actually um, listen to the masses? And then just kind of an informal question. I know you covered a lot of information in your presentation and we appreciate how much making such a um, concise presentation with so much history, but if there's anything you wanna add or Ken would like to add um, about anything you presented on, go ahead and do that too um, after answering the question. Yes, I mean, I would say just given like the intensity of the cultural revolution, I think it was pretty successful in some ways, you know, um, it's, it's a revolutionary process. It's, it's something that people still reference today. Um, but in terms of anything else I would like to add, you know, the cultural revolution when it was happening and even today, the legacy of the cultural revolution was deeply inspirational. I think around the world, um, when the Cultural Revolution was was taking place, this idea of, um, you know, Mao calling on the masses to criticize their own government, um, to keep their government accountable, that was deeply inspiring. You know, this is taking place in the 60s, uh, late 60s. So, yeah, I mean, I would say that it was successful. I, I, I mean, I don't, you know, just because the Gang of Four was arrested and that left-wing faction of of the um, of the party was jailed. I don't think that really means that then everything was reverted. Um, I think there are a lot of lessons learned from the Cultural Revolution that still carry out today. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think that uh, you know the Cultural Revolution was was a, a an intense revolutionary conflict, um, and it it certainly uh, people there was a period where people came out of that and felt a little battered and all that. Uh, but I think that in, in a long-term perspective, when people in China today look back, and this is, you know, people who lived through the Cultural Revolution and younger people today looking back at that legacy, I think that many people see the Cultural Revolution as a, as a struggle to, to, uh, to try to make the party and the, and the government more responsive to the needs of the people. And, uh, and I think that, that that's a good legacy that, that a lot of people still embrace today. And I also think, you know, in, in, in ways that uh, I don't know how substantive it is, there's a certain, I suppose you could almost say nostalgia. I know that in, in Beijing, uh, I spent a lot of time in Beijing. And, and one of the things that's fun to do there is go down to some of the parks, especially the big park down by the Temple of Heaven, where a lot of, a lot of older people, a lot of people from that generation, you know, hang out and gather and all this. And uh, there's a lot of, um, of singing that goes on. Mm -hmm. And if you listen, they're singing songs from the Cultural Revolution. They're singing songs about solidarity. They're singing songs about working together and helping people and building a new China and a better China. It's, um, I think that there's a lot of the legacy of that period. People don't want to live through intense political struggle and factionalism and all that stuff every day. But I think that the, the takeaway from that period is largely, uh, largely positive. We hear a lot in Western bourgeois circles that, oh, the, you can't talk about the Cultural Revolution in China. And that's just nonsense. People talk about it all the time. Uh, uh, there's museums about it. It's taught in school. You know, this, this, this idea that it's, it's sort of hidden away and hushed up is just nonsense. But I think that, that when people think about it, and as I say, both young people today and, and certainly people who live through it, that, that 
the long-term perspective is, is pretty positive. Yeah. Um, and I, I guess the last thing I'll add too, like just from my own personal experience, you know, my, my parents and their generation, um, they grew up during the cultural revolution. You know, my, all my, my mom's entire school age, my parents' entire school age was during the period of, you know, 1966 to 1976. And so, um, for when I talk, when I asked my mom about the cultural revolution and what that was like for her, um, you know, very limited ability to understand because I, I lack a lot of the political, um, language in Chinese, but she was like, you know, we, we went to school and then we went and worked, you know, at our, in our neighborhood crop. Like that's just the way life was. It was not this like bad punitive thing. It was like, this was just a part of normal life in China, right? It's not weird or anything like that. You know, my grandma went to the meetings where they would evaluate party officials, you know, things like that. So um, yeah. And, and just on the point of the, the, the art piece, I mean, culture and art and opera is such a big part of, of Chinese society now. You know, my, my parents were not a part of the elite. They were my, my dad's family, they were peasants, but they, you know, a part of the way that they socialize with their friends is through like listening to like a lot of like um, what feels like old modern or like old school um, opera that I think came out of that period. I can't say for sure, but it feels that way. Um, just based off of my research and what I've heard, so. Great, well, thank you both for your presentations and um, answering those questions. Um, I know everyone's had a long day of protest and action yesterday, maybe even today, and we learned a lot. So I'll pass the floor to Satya to close this up. Thank you so much again to Ken and Sheila uh, for their excellent presentations. And for everyone who asked questions and made comments today um, in the discussion, um, so we hope to uh, we hope that all of you will join us again next Sunday on June seventh, um, and those that class will be taught by the Chow Collective, and it will focus on China's socialist market economy and the uh, quest towards socialism.